Advent is an annual season of patient waiting and hopeful expectation. The word Advent means coming. As we await Christmas Day, we remember the coming of Christ as a baby, and we await the second coming of Christ, our King. Each week, as we light the candles in the Advent wreath, we allow ourselves to reset our minds and our desires. The world invites us into a time of rushing. Advent invites us into a time of waiting. The world invites us into a time of excess. Excess, sorry. Advent invites us into a time of anticipation. The world invites us into a time of stress. Advent invites us into a time of stillness. Please join me in the following responsive reading as we focus on how Jesus the seed brings hope. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those in a dark land, on them the light has shone. Jesus brings hope. The Lord spoke to Abraham and said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Jesus, the seed, brings hope. The angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus, the seed, brings hope. I will wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. I will wait for the Lord. For Jesus, the seed, brings hope. Lord, you are the light of the world, and by your grace, you have come to dwell among us. O come, Emmanuel. Be seated. Thanks, August. Hey, everyone. My name's Nick. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors. Um, this is the last uh, sermon series in a year that we've spent on joy. The year before, we focused on spiritual substance, and this year we focused on the fuel of spiritual substance or growth and godliness, which is joy. And um, there's a few things we tried to learn about joy this year. Um, one, that joy has to be fought for. Human beings have to fight for their happiness. We are quitters, and we are naturally miserable people. And it is by chasing after what is good and true in God as revealed in Christ and as applied to us in his spirit that we can have a long-lasting experience of the joy of God. Secondly, um, we talked in the second series of the year that this is not something that happens intermittently or however you want to pursue it. Joy has rhythms. We are natural creatures as well as spiritual ones, and joy has to be pursued in a certain set of rhythms that God ordains, like work and rest, celebration and mourning. And yet, 
one of the things we talked about all through the year when we celebrated the celebrations of the Old Testament, including a camp out in below freezing temperatures, was that um, if you pay attention to the ratio of celebration and mourning in the Bible, you may have thought with all the bad press God gets about the Old Testament that the God of the New Testament that begins to reveal himself in the Old Testament is a God that wants you to be sad and upset and mourning and saying you're sorry every minute. But what the Old Testament reveals is that the ratio of celebration feast days to days of mourning are 82 to 1. Nobody can reasonably get from that that our God is, is meaning to reveal to us in his will for us anything but that he wants us to be serious about our sins. But what he wants to give us is joy. And lastly, we spent almost a whole year in 2017 preparing for this in talking about what really does kill joy. If, if joy was a murdered person, Jesus says the first thing you should look at is the neck. Because joy is strangled from people. Joy dies the death of asphyxiation. Mark 4 says is that there was, there was a good plant, but the reason why it was unfruitful is that it was planted among thorns and it was choked to death. And that which choked it was what Jesus called worldliness. The love of the world, desire for other things, the love of money. And this time of year actually is a great metaphor for that because it's actually a time of year where we're supposed to be celebrating joy and the coming of Christ as the free gift of God, as a time of awaiting and rest and devotion and joy. And we are offered an alternative religion during this holiday of the cares of this world, the desires for other things, and the love of money. Literally, the exact thing that Jesus said will twist around and strangle out the life of joy is exactly the false and alternative holiday we're offered at this moment when God has actually offered us in Christ's coming joy. So in the midst of that, we, we memorize three very complicated verses. Do you remember? You can say them with me if you want to. Well, the first one is Romans 12, 12a, which is— you can say, be joyful in hope. I know, it's a really—you guys have forgot that, all, eight, all five words of it, right? Be joyful in hope. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.16 was what? Be joyful always. Another really difficult one. And then Nehemiah 8.10b is this. The joy of the Lord is your strength, right? That is, that, that Scripture says— Joy is not just something you bump into like a surprise friend you meet in the grocery store. Joy is a virtue. And all virtues have attending feelings. And in a culture of emotionalism, oftentimes all we think of anymore in the virtue of the virtue is the attendant feeling. So we think about love, and what we want to do is feel the feeling that attends the virtue of love. We want to feel like we're in love. And joy is similar. Joy is a virtue— is the virtue of living in cheerfulness and thankfulness. It has its own disciplines and devotions. It becomes part of our character, and we're meant to live it out. And when we do, it often has the attending emotion of joy. But make no mistake, joy, like love, is a virtue. It produces its fruits when it becomes part of our character, and it is a spiritual virtue. 
Now, over the course of the next four weeks, I'm going to be following the logic of a book by Greg Forster called Joy for the World. The subtitle is How Christianity Lost Its Cultural Influence and How It Can Begin to Rebuild It. Because one of the things that we have not talked a lot about this year, at least not in a series, is that the joy of God is, is not just supposed to be joy for the church. Through the church, the gospel is supposed to be joy for the world. Foster says this about America. He says, Christianity lacks social influence. Christianity's lack of, of social influence is easy to explain in Europe. There are very few Christians. But in America, it's a puzzle. Something like a quarter to a third of the population is evangelical. All evangelical does not mean voted for Donald Trump, okay? I know you'd think that because of how it, things get covered. Evangelical means that we believe in the, the scriptures as inspired by God. We believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died for our sins and rose for our justification. And we believe that every person must personally grapple with that by choosing to believe and entrust Christ personally. That's what an evangelical is. The word existed long before Donald Trump was born or before there were any kind of political anythings in America about what kind of judges should be appointed, okay? There was evangelicalism in Rome during the Roman Empire. It just meant those three things, okay? And so that's what he means, that there are Republicans and Democrats and young people and old people and all through this country, there are people who believe those things, who believe the gospel, who believe in the joy of God, and that joy of God is to be for the world, and yet when the world thinks about the church, it often thinks of people who either greatly disapprove of them and want to separate from them as far as possible, or as people who want to get power over them so that they can coerce them into their own way of life. Instead of people who sing the song of God's joy with their life, and so our joy for the world. There's um, the section really early in Forster's book, and I'm going to read this so I don't embellish for 25 minutes about it. Um, where he says this, uh, related to, because he, he wants to relate to the influence that faith in Christ can have on the world as joy to the world, to how he experienced Christian as a, Christmas as a non-Christian little boy. He says this, Christmas was always a very big deal in our family when I was growing up. We kept all the traditions. We went through all the motions. Christmas was sacred in our family. Christmas never had anything to do with the birth of Jesus. I was raised outside the church, and in contemporary America, that means we didn't even think about Christmas as having to do with Jesus. The idea would have seemed silly. You might just as well have expected us to cook an authentic 17th century figgy pudding. Officially, Christmas in our family was what all the TV specials say it's supposed to be about. Love, family, peace, being a good person. In other words, you were supposed to spend the whole time wallowing in feelings of moral goodness. If anybody had a nagging sense that there was something phony about all of that, it had to be repressed. Letting that show would have been a repulsive blasphemy. For me, though, Christmas was really about getting presents. It was the annual greed factory. I'm sure my parents tried to counteract this, and it's not their fault that they didn't succeed. It was an impossible task. All of the rituals of moral affirmation, what, whether desiring peace for the earth or being with family, made everything associated with Christmas seem morally legitimate, even the greed factory. As I got older, I noticed that Christmas was also about something else. Excruciating stress, exhaustion, and emotional trauma. For all the weary—first, all the wearisomeness of buying, selling, and sending, and then on the day itself, bickering and tears and jealousy. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, 
you have only to stay over Christmas with a family who seriously tries to keep it to see that it is a nightmare. They, they are in no mind for merrymaking. They look far more as if there has been a long illness in the house. In retrospect, this seems inevitable. And yet, every year, from time to time, there were moments of joy. I mean real, unique joy, a special kind of joy that nothing else in our whole lives ever compared with. It was tra a transcendent experience. The explosive moment might come at any time, in any place. In retrospect, however, I can clearly see how they came. And here's the key. The moments of special joy had all one thing in common. They were always prompted by cultural artifacts associated with Christmas that expressed a truly Christian Jesus-centered spiritual celebration. I have this one vivid memory. I must have been something like 10. I ran around the house, leaping from room to room, belting out, Hark the herald angels sing, and joy to the world at the very top of my lungs. All the stanzas, I was transported. I was soaring. Nobody ever sings Frosty the Snowman that way. These experiences did not create or result from real faith in Christ on my part. I got a little taste of the joy of God without getting God himself. I was washed for a moment by the spray from the breaking wave without actually going into the ocean, without even knowing there was an ocean. This is actually a common phenomenon. If you really get to know what life outside the church is like, you can see that this happens in all kinds of places. I wonder if people who have forgotten life outside the church still realize how much influence Christianity has on the world outside the church through these indirect tastes of joy. See, Forster's argument, and I, th I think he's basically right, is that this is how Christian faith, this is how Christ, through his Spirit and his people, is meant to influence the world. I don't think we're meant to influence the world as the world scolds, as its school marms, or as people that they're afraid of because they feel as though we're constantly grasping for political power so that we can control their lives, which is a universal human experience whenever you feel like someone's trying to do that. We feel the same way. Or as people who so desire to keep separate from them so we're not culturally infiltrated and degraded by their influence. People know when you desperately disapprove of them. And in those contexts, when we either are that way towards other people or just they feel that way towards us, even if it's wrongly, they cannot hear the song of the joy of God. And yet what Forrester sees in the Bible is that this is the way Christian faith is meant to influence the world. That the church comes together institutionally as a gathered body to receive from the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, to build up his people, to grow them together, to strengthen them in spiritual substance, and then organically they disperse into the world, singing from hearts that have prepared him room, the songs of God's joy through how they live everywhere, so that people experience the joy of God. They experience the song. There's a couple— Simple scriptures because you might be like, well, is this in the Bible? And it, it's in the Bible, but you kind of have to look at a 30,000 foot view because it's kind of enmeshed in everything, right? So for example, this Psalm 67 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us. 
So the theological theme is for us to be blessed. Do you see? And make his face shine upon us, Selah. That your ways may be known on the earth, that your salvation among all the nations. May the people praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. Selah. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, O God, our God. And, our, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Do you see the point he's making? He's saying, we want to be blessed. We want to flourish. Every human being wants to flourish, and all Christians want to flourish. And he says that what's necessary for us to truly flourish is for all the nations to see and enjoy God, who rules the nations in power, but who is good to everyone. And if the nations see this, such that we can be cooperative friends and co-inhabitors of his creation, rather than enemies and haters of each other, we will all flourish. The crops will produce their crops. God will bless us. If the joy of God comes out from us to the whole world, the result is that we will be blessed, and that that is the criterion on which God seeks to bless us. And you can see this in practice as the gospel goes out in the book of Acts. It says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, or filled with joy, and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off to their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Bible, there is not the Christians and the non-Christians. That's not the main division. There's not the Christians who love Jesus and the non-Christians who hate Jesus. There is the Christians who love Jesus. There are the elites who are threatened by the effect of Jesus. And then there's the people who don't know about Jesus. And what this passage says is that God says, look, I've made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to all the earth. That's all the people of the world. He says, it's your job to go and to share with them the joy of God in all its forms so that you can bring light. Because faith requires a certain kind of conception to see, right? And then salvation for them to devotedly give themselves to it and for, for them to have the effect of it spreading because of joy and because even when their leaders are kicked out, they can be full of joy and filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And yet in this passage, the bad guys are not the non-Christians. The bad guys are the religious elites, the cultural elites, and the political elites, and the economic elites. Because when the gospel enters people's lives, they become more content and not as easily economically manipulated. They know that God is king, and that earthly rulers are only intermediary rulers and are not to be treated as gods, and so they're less politically manipulatable. And they realize that there is a wisdom in God that is not the same as the wisdom of the world. And so the academic and the cultural elites do not have as unbridled an authority as they want. And so when we look at our place in the world, we shouldn't look at what the elites think of us, whether they're academic elites or political elites or governmental elites doesn't matter. The people of the world make their decisions based on their gut instincts about their experiences. 
if they consistently experience the joy of God in the Christians that they meet, they will believe that God is good news and a light for the world. And if they consistently experience that when they meet people who are believers in Christ and who take the scriptures seriously and who believe in personal salvation, when they see them as scolds and people who want to control their lives without coercively, without inviting them to choose it by conviction, and when they see people who want to separate from them because of their drastic disapproval of them, they will not see the joy of God. We want to believe passively that what elites think about us and the bigotry they spread about us one, isn't true, and sometimes it is true. And two, that it will control the minds of people. It will not. Not if they consistently experience something different. Not if they experience the joy of God in us. And I think Forster is right, that that is how the Bible teaches us. That's how the gospel teaches us. We were meant to have cultural influence. So what that means is, is that the joy of God can— transform our hearts until we sing a new song to the world, okay? Those are lyrics from Joy to the World. In fact, all of the sermons in this series are going to be based on lyrics from that song. We're going to hopefully, if I can preach right, we're going to sing it at the end too, right? So the, the first is, let every heart prepare him room. Today we're going to talk about basically the two prerequisites for the world experiencing the joy of God. And the first is that Every heart has to prepare him room, right? You're familiar with the story of Mary, where she comes into Bethlehem, and she's ready to have the baby, and it says that um, she had the baby in a manger because there was no room for her in the inn. And a manger is better than nothing, but we are meant to see in that passage an extreme failure of hospitality and understanding. That Either pe the people in the inn had no idea that there was a pregnant woman that needed the room because the innkeeper didn't tell them because this couple couldn't pay as much or something like that, or they knew and they didn't care. Right? Because it was like, it was like Super Bowl weekend. There weren't any other, you know, everybody had come for the Roman census. There weren't any other rooms to get. Everybody was at capacity. So if you gave this pregnant woman your room, you were going to sleep in the stable. Who cares? What decent human being of any age or back health quality would sleep in a in room knowing there was a pregnant woman giving birth or nine months pregnant? How disconnected do you have to be from any kind of spiritual moral reality? And that's exactly the point. And we're supposed to see the people in as exactly like us. That is typical humanity. That's not those evil people who are there. That's us. We human beings consistently and constantly are able to have no room in our hearts for God. Those of us who say we're devoted to him, who love him, are not devoted to him and don't love him. And we can tell because when we look at what Jesus calls worldliness, and when we can look at what Jesus calls the offices or actions of devotion, what we find is an abundance of the presence of the things he calls worldliness and a scarcity of the things that he calls devotion. And when we look at our hearts and the things that take our attention and the things we really want to do and think about, we see a, a lot of things that have nothing to do with the joy of God. Right? There's this, um, there's this passage in Luke 18, which is a parable that sometimes causes people to pray way too long at prayer meetings. 
It's uh, Luke 18, 2 to 8. Let me read it for you quickly. Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with her plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet this widow keeps bothering me, and I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust just says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? The answer is, of course not. But I tell you, he will see that they get justice in quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see what Jesus is saying is this. You see, people tend to think that that means that you should pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And if you're at a prayer meeting, and even though somebody prayed exactly the same thing as you want to pray, it's not okay to disagree with it. You should pray it yourself again for five to seven minutes, because only if your prayer meeting goes like for two hours will God really hear you. And that's really not what this means, okay? It does mean that you can keep praying about the same thing. But here's the point of this parable. The point of this parable is this. The big faith question in the hearts of human beings, and now we're talking about religious human beings here because the issue is God, okay? So religious of some kind at least is, will I get justice from God? That's the big question. We live our whole lives thinking that's the big question. Will I get justice from God? Is God going to give me justice? I keep asking him for justice. I keep trying to wear him out so he'll give me justice. There are all these situations in my life where people are treating me unjustly, and I deserve justice, and I should get justice, and I want justice, and I ask for justice, and he says he's a God of justice, and where is the justice? And the Bible is teaching, in the end, God will come as king, and he will judge the living and the dead, and he will mete out justice quickly. In God's mind, that is not the question at all. The, the question is, will there be any faith on planet Earth? That's the question. Now, that's a really interesting question because he's saying this to a lot of religious people, and he's starting a religion. <laughs> but one of the, the, re the reasons why that's so important is that what this parable is trying to do for us is that, you see, the only way every heart can prepare him room is if every person is asking, will anyone prepare him room? What that means is this. What if no one else on planet Earth prepared him room in their hearts? What if there was nobody else on planet Earth that was willing to open their hearts to Jesus? To everything he stood for, to everything he wanted to do. What if you were going to have to be the only one that had faith, that trusted him, and prayed to him, and lived out the joy of God, and sang it with your life, and nobody was going to approve of you because you did it, and nobody was going to affirm you because he did it, and nobody was going to open doors up at work for you because you did it, and nobody was going to do anything for you because you did it. In fact, people were going to dislike you and mistrust you because you did it. Would you do it? Will anyone, will there be any faith on the earth, right? You see, because in some ways, that's the only way you can really come to Jesus for the right reasons. Regardless of what anybody does, even your own family, will you come to Jesus just because he is true and he is good? Will you prepare him room? And you see, it's only when every single one of us asks that question for ourselves, for us, that everyone can begin to open their hearts to Jesus. All right, that's a fundamental idea in what 
historically was called evangelicalism, that all of us have to attend to our own hearts before Jesus. We all have to prepare a room recognizing that the normal question of humanity is, am I going to get what I want from God? And God's answer is, no, no, the question is, will I find faith on the earth? Will I really find faith in you? Right? And, and he's saying this to religious people because we think we have faith. But faith is like lung capacity, right? You can have, you can have a frog. A frog has lungs. Its lung capacity is not very big. You have a baby. They, have a, they can fill their lungs with a full lung capacity. It's not as much as an adult. Faith is the sort of thing that can be real and yet be very small and can grow. And it can be something that we think is very, has very good quality when it has, sometimes has terrible quality. Until we deal with the issues of our own devotion, the church can't sing the song of the joy of God so that the world sees it for what it is. And what that means is, is that two things. One is, in terms of us making every effort in our gracious striving, we have to actually believe that human beings tend to be dull of heart and are quick to give up. That that's, that's what human beings are. We're quitters. And therefore, if we're going to be people who have spiritual devotion, just like people, if we want to be people who are going to have romantic devotion, we have to keep stirring it up all the time. People who are devoted to anything practice the works of their devotion. Do you know what people who are deeply devoted to the religion of progressivism or, or conservatism in the Fox News sense, do you know what they do? They leave their TV on all day long. You walk into their house, it's always MSNBC or CNN or Fox News all the time. You walk in, it's always playing. They're always wafting in the fragrance of self-affirmation and confirmation bias. <sighs> Lifting their hearts in devotion to the great idol of their secular religion. They know that if they listen to the other side and they don't listen to their side, it'll confuse them. It'll, it'll dampen their passion and it'll mix up their devotion. Right? That's not good. Well, depends on what you're devoting yourself to, right? But that's a fact of human beings. If you want to be devoted to something, you have to stir yourself up. You have to think about all the things that are good about your spouse— all the things they've done for you over the years, all the things you do adore about them, and not the thing, and how little the, are the things that annoy you about them. Right? And even if you're, you totally hate their guts, you loved them once. Don't lie to yourself that you didn't like them when you married them. We were never really in love. Baloney! Nobody becomes monogamous for fun. Like, are you, 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 you blocked off a bill, you know, billions of other options for that one person. You were in love. Don't lie to yourself. And if you were in love, there's some seed of that still in them. And there's something that can be grown in that. You can, you can stoke that back up if you're serious about devotion. And the same thing is true about Jesus. And these things, these devotions, they have to be stirred up all the time in us. And our acts of devotion should be daily, hourly. Daniel one of the most righteous men of the Old Testament prayed three times a day. That's how he got, they got him in trouble. Jesus prayed all the time, and he was like the Lord. Right? 
And so, but at the same time, you might say, but Nick, I'm, <laughs> I'm a normal person. I'm not that spiritual. Okay, great. One, A, don't let yourself off the hook, first of all. But secondly, that's why it says in the book of Hebrews, there is a great high priest over the house of God. Lloyd will talk about this more next week, but the concept of a high priest is somebody who is there to stir up the devotion of people, to inspire them, to grab their hearts and pull them forward in love and devotion. And Jesus stands at the, at the right hand of God, and his main office at this point is not king and not prophet. He did prophet when he was here, and he's going to do king in the future. But right now, the main office he functions is, is priest. He is there through his spirit and through his promises and through his actions to stir up our devotion. You can do it, not because you're strong. You can do it because Jesus is very devotable. He is very beautiful. He is very good. He is very powerful. He stands on your behalf. He gives you freely of his spirit. He calls you to himself, and he runs out in front of you, it says in Hebrews 12, so that we can chase after the author and perfecter of our faith. And if you focus your devotion on Jesus, the one who is our great high priest, you will find the strength of joy welling up in you. Okay, now, secondly and lastly, right. Okay. Let men their songs employ, right? If the devotion of Jesus creates a song in us, we have to sing it. We have to sing it. Right? That if, if through devotion, God in, in his great high priest, Jesus the Christ, stirs up the fire in us, then the water of the song of God's joy should pour out of us. We have to sing the song. And when I say that, I mean we have to sing it like a song. So like if you think about the Bible, right? The Bible has no vision of political control. Has no vision of political control. Do you notice that? Everywhere in the Bible, it assumes we will not be in political control. In fact, in most places, the best we can hope for is that the, is that the powers of the world would leave us alone. Right? So it says, it says, Pray that they'll leave you alone so you can live quiet lives of godliness and devotion. Pa Paul, the Apostle Paul and the New Testament authors have no real hope for like, maybe if we got enough seats in the Senate, we could— Okay? That doesn't mean you shouldn't vote for people that you think will do good. Okay? It doesn't mean that. What it means is, is that the church, in expressing the joy of God to the world, has no conception of worldly powers, nor does it have any conception of successful separation. How are all the peoples going to praise him if we're not among them? John 17 says, Jesus sent us into the world. You may have heard it said, um, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That's not biblical. It's not we're in the world. No, we're not just in the world. That sounds like circumstantial. We're not in the world. We are sent to the world, not to be of the world, right? Now, if you look at the Bible, actually, us being a people of the song makes a lot of sense. The largest book in the Bible is a song book, right? The gospel, the euangelion, means the good news. News is something you herald, you tell others. It can't coerce them. Heralds don't have any right to make anybody do anything. They have the right to give a message so that other people can respond to it the way they think is appropriate. However, it rests on their conscience. And you can see this also in 
that songs are in themselves art and argument. There's music, there's beauty, and then there's a statement, there's lyrics. And the two are meant to go together. And even in scripture, you can see places where the content gets so good that the writer bursts into song or includes a song. Right? There's this great place in Romans 11 where Paul has gone on for 11 chapters about the glory of Christ and the gospel and what he's brought about. And he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he just starts writing poetry. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his ways are beyond tracing out. Right, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord or ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God would give back to him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a song that came from 11 chapters of lyrics of the beauty of the high priest Jesus. We are a people of song. And it makes sense when you think about how we're meant to live with beauty and herald the truth. That is a song. Do you see? Our, Our life is supposed to be both art and argument together. Right? You can see this in the characteristics of a song, right? Songs can't coerce people. They're songs. But everybody loves music. I mean, think about the consistent things in all human societies, right? They all eat. They all make babies, right? There's a lot of things. There's just—it's not a lot of things, but one of them is they all have music. Now, not every human society has had an extremely advanced system of music, but every human society has music. And almost all human societies, at least on the folk level, have music with lyrics. There is art and argument. Right? They go together, and they're meant to inspire, and all people love it, and all people are drawn to it. There's this naturalistic signal God is giving his church. Don't you see what all people can't help but love? That all people can't help but love Beautiful confession. Artistic argument. Everyone loves a song of joy. Heck, people even like sad songs. Right? It engages people through beauty and it persuades them through the convictions that the song teaches. But people can't hear the song if we're so separated from them that they hear always in our voice our withering disapproval of them. And the way Forrester talks about this, he's like, look, we can't get rid of the gospel. We can't stop talking about the moral truths about God. He said, but one of the things the church often does is that it doesn't affirm before it calls for transformation. He said, in fact, he says in the book, and I think it's an overstatement, but I called him on the phone this week, and he was like, nope, I mean it. He, he said, I, he said, calls it the biggest failure of the church. He says, when we call people to transformation— by moral disapproval, without first affirming things about their lives, their humanity, their civilizations, their cultures, and their lives. He says, we, if, we, if we affirm what the grace of God and the image of God has wrought in people's lives, and then we call them to step into the joy of God's transformation— they can hear that if they, what they don't hear first is our withering disapproval. And it's also true that whenever we take steps that seem like we're trying to take control of them, right? Like, there's probably some group that you see in your life that you don't want to be in charge, right? You know, whether it's like the anti-fascists or the white supremacists or, you know, Ben and Jerry's. Like, you know, what? there's some group, like, you don't want them to be in charge. Google, I don't know, right? And— 
and you're concerned that if they get in charge, like, they're going to try to, like, make you do things you don't want to do. Even, like, you might even be willing to do them if you could do them on your own, but you certainly don't want other people to make you do them, right? Christians can sound that way in how we talk. And when, when we, we act as though we, would, we wish we could make people do stuff, we're not only— we're not only betraying the gospel because the gospel claims that everybody should do what they do out of faith or it's sin. Everything you do, you should be doing in line with your conscience. Because if you go against your conscience, there's no hope of your salvation. If you do what you know is wrong, you can't be moving towards God. So even if you're wrong, in some ways it's better to do that thing until your conscience gets moved, until you learn better what's right and you have enough light for your conscience to get changed. Because if you don't do what you think is right, you are poisoning your mind and your conscience to ever be right. Because you're treating what you, what you think is the truth as unsupreme. And the truth can't be sought that way. So, where we have to end is this. The way the joy of God is meant to influence the world is that the joy of God is supposed to come out of us like a song. Not in coercion, not in our superior separation, not in our call for people to change before they're affirmed, not in ways that they naturally and humanly find terrifying. We often, I think, implicitly try to persuade people to come to Jesus in means that would terrify us if other people tried to persuade us of what they think that way. And so, I think Forrester is right. I think he's right that the gospel teaches us and the scriptures as a whole teach us that when the church comes together as a people to grow in spiritual substance— and to unleash the devotion of joy through the great high priest Jesus in our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we open our hearts to him and really let him deal with the idols and the self-righteousness, and we really begin to grow in humility because we know that we're not naturally good men and women. And so we can deal with the plank that's in our eye before we turn to our neighbor. And if we can see the glory of God already in them and the image of God that they bear— and if we can affirm something in them before we call them to, trans to transformation, and if we can live with both the artistic persuasion of the beauty of moral goodness and truthfulness and love, accompanied by the stated convictions of the truth of the gospel, I think that he's right that that's how Jesus told us we were meant to have influence. We are heralds. We are not bureaucrats. We are singers, not divine police officers. And when we live in that, with the kind of passion and substance that we can, I think that we, we won't have to take any influence. Influence can't be taken. It can only be given. And maybe the elites will stir up things against us and push us out of the city, like in, like in uh, Acts 13. But I think that many of the people will open their hearts to Jesus and be glad and be filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.
Father, as we turn, um, turn our hearts to this ritual of devotion, what we call communion of the Lord's Supper, where we proclaim that we agree with you, that we have, as your image bearers, as your guardians of creation, have sinned, and that you have loved us, and given yourself for us, and shown us the path of your forgiveness and affirmation through your death and resurrection in Christ, that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, that we would proclaim your death until he comes. That we would, we would proclaim to ourselves and so live before the world as people who are truly beggars when it comes to our self-righteousness. And I pray that you would free us from the fear and the anger that can so easily fill our hearts and out of which we can so commonly act. We pray that we would walk out of this in joy. In Jesus' name.